This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We are getting into what would be the peak season for cruise ship business here in the islands. March, April, May would normally see thousands of passengers across the state. Is the coronavirus crimping bookings? This morning, we talked with Shannon McKee of Access Cruise, which operates out of Florida and here in the islands. Uh, McKee gave us an overview of the cruise line business in Hawaii. Well, the cruise industry has has been coming to Hawaii for many, many years, and we've definitely had some ups and downs. We had the height of the cruise industry uh, back in 2004 when Norwegian Cruise Line and NCL America had three vessels permanently uh, positioned in Hawaii doing inter-island cruising. After they left, we had a little bit of a downturn, but the cruising has really picked up steam, um, especially in Hawaii, and so we've we're meant to see our, our biggest numbers in the last about 15 years this year in, in 2020. The height of the cruise season is always in the spring and fall when the cruise lines reposition their vessels between um, Australia and Asia into Alaska, sometimes from uh, the Caribbean over to Alaska. So traditionally what happens is we will have between March through the middle of May is really the peak season in the spring when the ships begin to come into all the islands. Then we see things will start to slow down for the summer where we'll have the Pride of America, which is here every week, and she will be here throughout the summer. We may get an international line that stops in here and there. Some of the luxury world cruises will stop in Hawaii in the summer. But then it picks up again in September through November with lots of international cruise brands as they reposition their vessels once again between Alaska back over to Asia and then back over uh, to the Caribbean. In the wintertime, we see a lot from Princess Cruises. Princess has been a staple in the Hawaiian marketplace. They have been around and, and they're running cruises usually throughout the winter months between California and, and Hawaii. And, and this is pretty much in, in every year for the last few years. This is one of their staple itineraries. And we've got other companies like Celebrity, Holland, Carnival Cruises, right? I mean, just a, a number of companies that stop here. Absolutely. Um, Norwegian's by far the largest of the cruise lines as far as the, bringing the most number of guests because they have the inner island cruising but yes, we have Holland America, we have Princess, we have Carnival, we have Celebrity, we have Royal Caribbean. Royal Caribbean last year brought in the largest vessel that, that Hawaii has seen in the islands, which was the Ovation of the Seas, which was a vessel of about 4,000 passengers. And then, of course, we have all the small luxury lines, Viking, Cruise Line, Seaborn, Crystal, um, all of those vessels are coming through. So I, I think because of the sheer numbers and the situation that we're dealing with, uh, with the uncertainty with this coronavirus, you know, there is concern about, you know, right. how do we accommodate them? I think them? there's a lot of uncertainty um, around the coronavirus. You know, the, the same thing with passengers coming in via, via airplane, I would suspect. Um, what I would say after being in the cruise industry for almost 30 years is that I feel very comfortable with, with the cruise industry. I worked on board. Um, I was a cruise director on board for about eight years before I moved into corporate offices for a cruise line and then forming my own company. Um, so I, I've seen the cruise line from, from many different aspects, and I believe that they have very stringent protocols in place um, already. However, they are taking those protocols up to even another level. They just met with Vice President Pence um, to go over what protocols they do have in place and what they need to do to even take these protocols to a more stringent level um, to ensure the safety and, and the health of their passengers on board. So we're seeing that ratcheted up this week? Yes, actually. They met with Vice President Pence on Saturday, March 8th, so just a few days ago. They had 72 hours. And they are meeting today with the U.S. administration to review the protocols that they are proposing to put in place, um, reviewing with the CDC, and they are presenting them. And I suspect that they will have those presented um, for, for everyone to see uh, for the member cruise lines that will put in place, and that they are meant to be, come out this afternoon. Now, I know there has been a call by our lieutenant governor you know, for the White House to halt 
cruise ships from coming in here for 60 days, which is mm-hmm. an extreme, uh, you know, be- yeah. because we're talking about an industry and the livelihood of, uh, of many people. And, and, you know, when we talk about what it brings into the state coffers as well. The CDC put out a statement saying uh, an advisory on cruise, but really the underlying statement when you read further past and beyond the headlines, uh, the statement really said that if you have any pre-existing conditions or, you know, you're elderly, that yes, you should think twice about taking a cruise since this seems to be who is being affected um, by the the um, CO did 19 virus. Um, there was just a statement, in fact, today that that came out from Dr. Anthony Fauci. I may be saying maybe his name incorrectly. He is the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institute of Health. And during today or yesterday on Monday, there was an evening press conference where he said, if you're young and healthy and an American, you should have no reason not to take a cruise. So that was encouraging coming coming from him. Well, I have two friends that right now are on a cruise in Tahiti, and uh, you know nobody wants to see anyone get sick. You know, you you worry about the right. the, the crew members and the passengers. But at this point, uh, then, like you said, protocols are uh, being put in well, place. Well, I can tell you that you know that the cruise lines, before anybody is even you know joining a vessel, they're denying boarding to all persons who have traveled or visited any of the countries in question. Um, that goes for passengers as well as crew members. They're connecting illness screenings for all passengers who have traveled or visited any of the, the airports and any of these destinations on the CDC list. Uh, they're conducting temperature screenings as soon as they're capable um, upon embarkation. So before anybody can even get on the ship, they're already doing temperature screenings. I think it's it's well above and beyond what any other industry is really doing. I mean, I don't see that happening in the in the airline industry at this point in time. They're denying boarding to any persons who within 14 days prior had visited any of these countries or they had helped care for anyone suspected or diagnosed of having uh, the virus. They're conducting pre-boarding screenings necessary um, for preventative measures. And those are just the, the protocols that are in place today. As I said, CLIA and their member cruise lines, which are all the large cruise lines that come into Hawaii, all the cruise lines that come into Hawaii are members of the CLIA organization. The, they're going to they're gonna put even further screenings in place for cruise ship passengers. So how are things down in Florida? Here, I think people kind of have feel like they have to carry on their, their daily lives. It's interesting. You hear things from others that are around you but you know in my community where we are it's business as usual the cruise lines i know have you know that they're still leaving out of miami they have more lenient cancellation policies they understand with the with the virus out there that some people are worried um if they have pre-existing conditions and they don't want to sail that the cruise lines are allowing them to cancel without penalty so they're being very lenient um miami's the hub of the cruise lines but that the ships are sailing. They're, they're sailing out, you know, every day. Now, in Asia, it's a different story. Some of those ships are not sailing at the moment um, as they prepare them to reposition them and clean them and put them into new marketplaces. But here, the industry is moving forward. It's a great time to sail. If you've not had an opportunity before, you know, you can probably get a good deal on a cruise ship. Um, it's probably not going to be as crowded. Some of the, the elderly passengers may have or those with pre-existing conditions may have canceled you know the cruise lines are using used to filling you know their their ship so it, it's probably an opportune moment for if you haven't or if you've ever wanted to sail to, to take it to take a cruise um, at this point in time the ships will be transitioning back to europe very shortly other than italy at the moment which is a problem but that's a country that's in a lockdown um at the moment so that's that's definitely causing challenges for the industry. Um, we have cruise lines that are that are based out of Italy. Um, you have MSD Cruises, um, which is home port is Genoa. I'm not as familiar with, with what's happening in, in Genoa and with the MSD ships and what they're doing with those ships. Um, but it is def- definitely a challenging time um, for those vessels that are in Europe right now. Okay, and, and will those new protocols be posted anywhere? Yes, you know? actually, if you go to cruising.org, um, that is the cruise line 
international association uh, site. Right now they have a statement post which was released on March 8th um, on the virus and what they're doing where everything that I spoke about, you can, you can find there about the current procedures that they have in place. And they also have a toolkit on there to talk about what is taking place. And then they will post the updated procedures once they've presented them to the, the U.S. government. Okay, but that's a, a good go-to site. All right, well, thank they you. They're really taking the lead for the cruise industry and working on the cruise industry on the protocols around what they need to do to fight the virus. All right, well, thank you so much, Shannon. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That was Shannon McKee of Access Cruise, a company that works with the Hawaii Tourism Authority to sell Hawaii as a destination for the cruise liners. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at Honolulu Skyline. At 429 feet tall, the first Hawaiian Center in downtown Honolulu is the tallest building in Hawaii. Designed by Cone Peterson Fox Associates, the striking building has sharp angles in several directions. There are 30 floors above ground and five underground floors for parking. The building includes a 24,000 square foot open plaza, park space, and waterways. Inside, you'll find a First Hawaiian Bank branch, lots of office space, an L&L on the ground floor, and an exclusive private top floor restaurant with unbeatable views. There's also an art exhibit in collaboration with the Honolulu Museum of Art. During the holiday season, it becomes slightly taller when a lighted star is displayed on the roof. First Hawaiian Center has held the title of Hawaii's tallest building since 1996. But what was the tallest building before that? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. Hospitality Association will be hosting the Kahuina Conference this Thursday at the Hawaii Convention Center. Topics include culture in sports, including football and surfing, music, science, tourism, and more. The conference will also host a market selling products by Native Hawaiian artists and entrepreneurs. John DeFries is the executive director of the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association. He spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about what's in store. Let me start uh, with uh, the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, who we represent, which was founded in 1997 by two very concerned uh, Native Hawaiian businessmen um, and scholars, Dr. George Kanahele and Kenneth Francis Brown. And the concern back in 1997 was that the culture was either being misrepresented or marginalized in ways that uh, uh, were not helpful to the Hawaiian community and also diluting 
improving the visitor experience over long term. So they created the association uh, to basically bring focus to Hawaiian cultural values that could uh, enrich business development as well as leadership training. So we've been in existence since 1997, and Kahuina is our second annual conference, which will take place on March 12th at the Hawaii Convention Center. Kahuina literally means the uh, the intersection or nexus, and what we um, seek to do is address the nexus of community, culture, tourism, and sustainability. And to achieve that, we also present Hawaiian culture uh, in its traditional perspective, as well as innovative ways it's being applied across tourism today. The whole point is, is too often, Hawaiian culture gets pigeonholed. And we, we think of it in, in entertainment, we think of it in hula, all of which is important, by the way. But the, the whole purpose here is to present the fact that Hawaiian culture is pervasive in all aspects of business, all aspects of tourism. And as the largest industry, tourism has the opportunity to really help nurture the development of Native Hawaiian entrepreneurs, Native Hawaiian cultural practitioners, and in so doing, provide the visitor with an enriched experience. And um, we're excited about it because we begin to see signs in the marketplace where the market over time is going to start demanding more authentic experiences that honor culture and community. And uh, Hawaii, frankly, is positioned to be a world leader in that area. The community, I know you say, it, it has always been a part of these businesses, but there's maybe a discussion that they can't get along. But can you maybe talk about how, how, how are these things integrated? My, my entry into tourism goes back to the early 70s, right? And I remember uh, the industry basically messaging uh, to the community what value tourism dollars meant to the community. I was always slightly offended by that because what that presumes is somehow tourism and the community are separate entities. The reality is every morning in every hotel, in every business, the community walks in and basically the community is operationalizing tourism, right? These are people walking from every corner of every island every day to make the industry what it is today. And so we need to reframe the way we look at that because we are not detached and we shouldn't be talking to each other as if we are detached because uh, we need one another to achieve the business goals for the commercial aspects of tourism, but also we need to achieve the goals that can make a prosperous community, neighborhood, prosperous family by providing job opportunities. So, you know, I would, I would say that the, it starts by understanding that the community and industry, tourism industry, are wholly integrated because there would be no industry without the community. Who should be attending this event? Given that we are the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association and a contractor to the Tourism Authority, our primary audience are people within the visitor industry or within the business sector uh, here in Hawaii. But I will tell you that uh, there is a registration fee of $85 for the one-day conference, which includes lunch and a reception that follows. But I would reach out to every one of your listeners from the general public and say, if you have any interest in Hawaiian culture, in the relevance of Hawaiian culture in contemporary times, I don't care what your profession is, you will find benefit by attending this event. It transcends tourism because we're talking about Hawaiian culture in a way that cannot be placed in a box. It cannot be put under glass. It is pervasive. It is what makes Hawaii unique. Whether you're in tourism, whether you're in the military, whether you're in a completely different profession. We end up with attorneys showing up. We end up with uh, financial advisors showing up, and especially now, when the complexion and the landscape is shifting on things related to Hawaiian culture, much of it driven by the activity on Mauna Kea, but a deeper understanding, a better appreciation of Hawaiian cultural values is the way of the future, regardless of what industry you're in. You can be in public education, uh, you can be a private school teacher, you will derive immense benefit from the lineup that we put together. You know, right now, things going on at 30-meter telescope, Kahuku Wind Farms, you know, just some of the few cases out there right now where there's just this big discourse of Native Hawaiians 
and traditional practices versus new technologies or movement. But how can we bridge that gap? I have to tell you, I'm encouraged by the, the uh, as a starting point, the new strategic plan that the Tourism Authority has uh, adopted. And it comes on the heels of a, a year of community meetings, and it recognizes on, on every island and throughout the various communities, but it recognizes the adverse impacts that tourism uh, has had on our communities, right? Some of our infrastructure, some of our favorite beaches, some of our favorite parks are not equipped to handle this, you know, impact of increasing numbers. And last year, we, for the first time, uh, totaled 10 million visitors, right? And so what the strategic plan has done is establish these four pillars of natural resource protection, Hawaiian cultural perpetuation, community well-being, and global branding as a means of putting Hawaii on a trajectory toward responsible tourism, which is the counter to what is well known as over-tourism. And what complicates this is social media. If I'm visiting Hawaii and I have a wonderful experience and I found this private secret waterfall, I'm a media company too, so I put it out there the fact that I have to jump two fences and cross private property and all that really doesn't mean anything to me unless somebody starts to educate me as to how best to be my, to do my part as a visitor in somebody else's homeland. Tourism will emerge, I believe, as, um, as uh, our, our friend Nainoa Thompson says, why isn't Hawaii a school and every visitor a student? And so I said to him, what are we going to teach him? And he said, Malama Aina, Malama Kikai, you know, so that they understand how we do it so that they can go home and apply it in ways that are appropriate to their homeland. And now that's a, that's a massive aspirational vision, but I don't think we have a choice. We as the host have an obligation to teach those who come here. And for too long, uh, you could say that the market was actually dictating what it wanted from us. And I think the events that you pointed out, the points of conflict, the points of tension, are raising the specter of us as a host culture, us as a Kamaina community, taking the responsibility to manage what has become the success of tourism that also has a adverse impact if you don't manage it correctly. One last question about the event. Uh, since coronavirus has been in the news and Festpack's been postponed, Honolulu Festival. You know, we'll take precautions and we'll certainly will present, take the opportunity to present the to the audience um, the kinds of things that we should be doing individually and with our families to help protect ourselves against this. Uh, our event will move forward. Uh, we are not catering outside the state of Hawaii. So uh, the people that will attend this uh, come from every island, from different types of businesses beyond tourism. And But it's, it's a localized audience, so we're not uh, reaching outside our shores at this time. But, but there are lessons to learn, and the Tourism Authority is uh, diligent in getting information out because it is an industry that is extremely porous because we cater to an international marketplace. And Hawaii, in that respect, is, uh, is vulnerable, and we need to take the steps to protect ourselves as well. Can you talk about some of the speakers that will be, uh, that will be at the event? You know, we uh, will focus on a range of topics, uh, one of them being sports marketing. And we'll be looking at the impact of Hawaiian cultural values and how they're shaping these sporting events that are globally televised. And the three events that we will focus on are the um, Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, which is in its seventh year. Uh, in addition to that, we've asked Mufi Hanneman, uh, president of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, to weigh in on the community programs that the Football Hall of Fame uh, is having. And of course, in the last seven years, as we know, local Hawaii athletes are beginning to excel at all levels of uh, professional football. We'll also be looking at surfing. Let's hope that the uh, Tokyo Olympics moves forward because surfing will be featured for the first time. And here, uh, most of America has soccer moms. Here in Hawaii, we have surfer moms. And we've got uh, the best surfer mom, in my mind, in Malia Kaihui, the president of DTL, whose uh, daughters are uh, champion-level age group surfers, as well as her husband. And then 
We're taking the rare opportunity to uh, interview a guy who's been at the forefront of the entertainment scene in Hawaii for more than 50 years, and that's Henry Capono. Henry um, is a man of 100% Hawaiian ancestry who for more than five decades has remained uh, at the leading edge and extremely relevant. So whenever he's performing at Duke's on Sunday, uh, on Waikiki Beach, they are live streaming that around the world, and and people will be amazed at what that global audience, uh, how loyal they are on Sundays, and the impact it's having on putting Hawaii out as a brand and visitor destination around the world. Then in the afternoon, we'll look at science tourism and a project that is uh, being incubated at the Imiloa Astronomy Center, where leading physicists and astronomers from Mauna Kea are now collaborating with uh, Hawaiian language experts at Kahakaula Okeelikolani, which is the College of Hawaiian Language at the University of Hawaii Hilo, in that initiative led by Dr. Larry Kimura, in a collaboration with Doug Simons, who is the uh, executive director of the Canada-France Telescope, and they will be joined by Kaiu Kimura, the executive director of the Imiloa Astronomy Center. And then uh, we have the rare opportunity of bringing father and daughter together in uh, Chad Kalepa Babayan, a pole navigator and one of the original crew members of the 1976 voyage to Tahiti on Hokulea, and his daughter, who has emerged as not only a voyager, but a navigator in her own right. And so they will be um, looking at both the anthropological progression of how voyaging emerged first in Taiwan and then the Pacific Islands and ultimately to Hawaii. And Kalepa will be focused on that while his daughter begins to project how voyaging is affecting public education and educational youth initiatives uh, on Maui. And then we're capping it off with a look at the Aloha Plus Challenge, which is Hawaii's commitment to six sustainable goals to be achieved by the state of Hawaii by the year 2030. 30. And we're fortunate to have the executive director, Celeste Connors, who in a previous professional life was the White House advisor on global climate change to President Obama. And she will be joined by Kamana Opono Crab, the CEO of the Kohala Institute. Uh, what's unique about that role is that the institute is based, is headquartered at Iole Ahupua'a in Kohala. 2,400 acres under single ownership that is strategically aligned with the Aloha Plus Challenge goals, as well as the goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And then they will be joined by Kalani Kana'ana, who is the Director of Hawaiian Culture and Natural Resources at the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Six weeks ago, the Tourism Authority Board approved a new strategic plan with four basic pillars natural resources, Hawaiian culture, community, and global branding. And so within that strategic plan, there are specific references to tourism aligning itself with the Aloha Plus Challenge goals, aligning itself with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so this panel will basically move through that topic uh, and some very qualified people to be speaking in every one of these uh, topic areas. That was John DeFries of the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association. He was talking with our Jason Ubai. They were discussing the Kauina Conference. The event takes place Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Hawaii Convention Center. You can find more information at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ala Moana Center, welcoming 2020, the Year of the Rat, with cultural activities and performances today through 5 p.m. Event details at alamoanacenter.com. America, are we ready? 
Six more states in the South, Midwest, and West have their say in taking the Democratic challenger to President Trump from a much narrowed field. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me and listeners from around the country for a national call-in special on this big day in the election year. The time to listen and participate is now. Call in with your thoughts on the candidates and the state of our country. America, are we ready? Starting this afternoon at 1. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about a potential break for Young Brothers, which provides vital inter-island shipping. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning for our reality check. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So tell us about this bill that you're tracking down there at the uh, legislature. Well, uh, the bill would give a subsidy uh, to Young Brothers, the uh, inter-island shipping company that that really is is our only uh, inter-island company uh, serving all of the main islands. And so whose idea was this bill to give them a break? Well, the the sponsor is Representative DeCoit from Maui, and the idea is that um, the background is Young Brothers has asked for and is seeking a, a 34% rate increase from the Public Utilities Commission, essentially as a, as a monopoly or a common carrier uh, for the water transportation in the state. Uh, Young Brothers has to go to the regulators and, and get permission to raise rates. Um, it's doing that and is talking about a 34% rate increase. Uh, this would be a big blow to a lot of the neighbor islands, including small ones uh, like Molokai and Lanai. Yeah, that's a fat hike. Yes, it's a big hike, and it, it really hits these smaller islands because they don't get um, a, a lot of the, the bulk uh, huge containers of cargo that are a little bit less, can be a little bit less expensive to transport. So again, for Young Brothers, um, shipping small amounts of cargo to the uh, less than container load is, is the term of art they use, uh, to the smaller islands is really expensive. It takes a lot of handling, a lot of expense. So the idea is that the, the state could shift some money to Young Brothers um, to help offset the cost, presumably this would mean they're not going to have to have the rate increase, at least uh, not for portions going to Maui. So the idea is that, what, we just get in a, give them a boatload of cash? Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, we're not sure how much exactly, um, but yeah, that that's the idea. There is a special fund. Uh, harbor users pay into it, and um, it would... Uh, it's been running a surplus, so the harbor users uh, pay into it uh, through all kinds of ways, uh, fees, even fines, that sort of thing, and then the Department of Transportation uses it to operate and maintain the harbors. Um, it's been running a surplus of some 200 to 300 plus million a year for the past several years, so there would be money in it. It's just whether it's appropriate to use this money to help one company. Okay, so this lawmaker then is proposing it to help the smaller counties in her district. Uh, Who's against it? Well, the State Department of Transportation is against it because they're worried that, well, you're using this this, uh, money and it's benefiting one particular company. more than others. Um, there's another issue about the legality of it that the Department of Transportation raised uh, sort of obliquely. And, and the issue is that there is a law that governs how this sort of special fund, this special fund money can be spent. And in this case, it might be an issue if the special fund is being used to benefit uh, a wider population and not just harbor users and transportation companies. So what are the other issues that we need to look at? Well, the, the background is there's still a uh, Public Utilities Commission rate uh, case going on. Again, this is like a, one of it's a very complicated case. There's a lot of evidence being presented, a lot of discussion. And uh, so that case goes on. One thing that's not completely clear is what how the uh, rate case and this proposal uh, relate to each other. Uh, it looks like it's very possible that if Young Brothers did get this incentive uh, or the subsidy, it would have to amend its rate application because to a 
to show a different level of revenue that it's getting. So how's it been doing just, you know, otherwise, the bottom line? Uh, the, well, the bill's moving along through the, through the legislature. It, it went through the House with no problem. Um, it's got a referral in the Senate to the Transportation Committee and Ways and Means Committee. Again, it's a dub, that's just a double referral. It's pretty easy for a bill to get through just two committees. There's no major hurdle there. So it looks like it's on track unless people really come out and oppose it. Uh, there was one uh, council member from uh, Kauai who asked uh, why is this only benefiting one island so you might have other neighbor island uh, people coming out and saying hey we want this to help us too um, otherwise it's moving along. So Matson competes with Young Brothers in some way right? Right there is this um, exception to the notion of inner island uh, transportation only being covered, only being done by Young Brothers. And that is if something comes in from the mainland, it can effectively be uh, offloaded and shipped onto a neighbor island and still count as uh, not inner island uh, cargo, which isn't subject to this uh, rate. And that's part of the problem. Young Brothers had been getting a lot of that cargo uh, handed off to it, and it was able to charge a little more than the standard uh, gov uh, regulated rate. Now, Matson's doing a little bit more of that, and Young Brothers says, hey, this is eating into the little surplus that we had before to help cover the operating costs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's it. And and so uh, I understand that Young Brothers has been, has been operating in the red, uh, and they're trying to upgrade their vessels, but... Um yeah, there, there's a lot needs to be massaged yet. That's Sounds right. Like. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Appreciate it. Thank you, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. Uh, go to read his story online at civilbeat.org. Voters in six more states head to the polls with more crucial delegates at stake. Let us win the Democratic nomination and let us transform this country. Will one candidate emerge as the clear frontrunner to face President Trump? We're better than this moment and we're better than this president. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Join us for live special coverage of Big Tuesday from NPR News. Starting this afternoon at 2, following America, Are We Ready? Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. The historical drama, The Conversion of Ka'ahumanu, explores the Queen's personal journey towards adoption of Christianity. Opens Thursday, March 19th, kumukahua.org. We are looking up at tall buildings for today's Backyard Quiz. On Kauai, it said that buildings can't be taller than a coconut tree. It's technically 30 feet tall for residential and 50 feet for commercial. On Oahu, it's now 418 feet, more than half the height of the 716-foot Diamond Head Crater. One building, though, is slightly taller than that at 429 feet. First Hawaiian Center is the headquarters of First Hawaiian Bank, the state's oldest and largest bank. Sometimes the building is called the credit card building because it's thin and, and, uh, and tall. But when the building uh, finally uh, opened in 1996, it became Hawaii's tallest building, uh, a title that it has held now for more than two decades. Prior to that, the Kakako Residential High Rise Nauru Tower, built in 1992, held that title. At 417 feet, it held the title for only four years, though. Even more surprising is that the Nauru Tower is now just the 10th tallest building in Hawaii. Will the height limit ever be broken? Well, moves have been made to increase the building height limit, but nothing is law yet. And no one got that uh, question right, so we have no winners today. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Democrats are preparing for a debate between presidential hopefuls Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. But today on The Long View, we're going to turn our gaze on the people who don't vote. This morning, Neil Milner joins us live in our studio to talk about a new study out and how it might impact elections later this year. The study is called The 100 Million Project. Good morning. Hi. So tell us about this 100 million project. Well, it's a 100 million project because they estimate about 100 million people don't vote uh, regularly at all. And if you look at the 2016 presidential election, as they point this out, 29 or so percent voted for Hillary Clinton, 27 or or so percent voted for Donald Trump, and 41 percent did not vote. So... Voting, non-voting was really in the, in, the, uh, in the plurality, if you look at it that way. So what the Knight Foundation did is to sponsor a huge study of non-voting particularly. Uh, and what they've, they've talked to 12,000 people, mostly surveys, some in focus groups. They did a sample of voters, a sample of non-voters. This is national, so they could compare them. They did a subsample of swing state non-voters. Um, and they did a, another small sample, well, it's about 1,000, of what they call the emerging electorate, which is the youngest potential voter, usually seen as 18 to 24. And a lot of what they found out is what we know about non-voting already and that we don't like, always like to accept, uh, but they, they did a lot more than that. So they got in a, a little bit deeper. They got deeper. I mean, one of the things that they find, for example, is that you find non-voting, non-voters all throughout the political and social spectrum. That is, you find not, and they end up, in fact, dividing uh, the non-voters into what they call clusters. And they cluster, there are three clusters. One, uh, 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 there are six clusters altogether. They break down into two groups. Disconnected groups and connected groups. The disconnected groups are, these are non-voters, remember. Now, there, there's one group that's conservative, um, that's older and whiter, and they sound a lot like the people who vote for Trump, except they don't vote. You have another group that's called progressive, uh, uh, progressives, liberals, who sound a lot like Democrats, only this group doesn't vote. There's a lot of similarities. And then there's a moderate group. And then these, these disconnected groups, which tend to be younger, are simply not tied into and not interested in, in politics. And they sound a lot like the non-voters overall. So they just don't care. Well, but see, when we say they just don't care, it starts sounding like uh, a shaming sort of thing. Let's, let's get one thing straight here, I think, that we know that non-voters tend to have less education, less likely to go to college, less money. They're less tied into community life. They don't, uh, they're less likely to volunteer, less likely to be married, less likely to go to church. Um, but to see them as kind of outcasts who are all that different doesn't make much sense because, in fact, there's a cross-section all the way through. It certainly is the case, and it certainly is the case that there's a significant group of people who don't know very much, don't follow the news very much, um, and really don't care very much. But there is also a group within this that follows the news not bad. They're kind of connected, and they still decide not to vote. The reasons for not voting are generally that um, they're just, it they're just not, it's not a high priority with them. It's, uh, I know we've, we've lamented the fact that, that uh, folks don't keep up with the news yeah. and, and, and sometimes just rely on the, the late-night comedians to, to kind of get their headlines. Um, but, yeah, so you worry about what they know. or what? Well, if you worry too much about what they know, you won't understand the complexity of the process. That's why when I talk about this, I'm real careful not to do worries or laments or all those sorts of things. I certainly would like people to be more attentive to the political process. I mean, I taught politics for all of my life, but if you tend to, to just worry about them, you tend to think that it's easier to change and that it just requires um, little changes. These people don't necessarily feel bereft. They just have other priorities. They don't like one of the things that non-voters seem to share, uh, it seems to show up pretty much in terms of what they don't like about elections is the Electoral College. It's not mm -hmm. much different than the voters. They, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It, it takes the thing out of the hands. And, and non-voters tend to have less faith generally in the electoral process. Yeah. Part of that is that there's, there's some think it's 
you know, it's kind of rigged. But there's another part of which that says it's just not very important in, in our lives. So and they don't like the process. They don't like the process, it. but it's not like, um, yeah, they, they don't like the process, but it's not like they're necessarily all that interested in becoming a part of the process. But, and they don't trust the process, I well, guess. Well, they don't trust the process. But again, that's just one reason of, of a whole bunch of reasons why why people uh, decide not to vote. And it's it's a long list, but nothing really dominates. So what surprised you? Anything? Well, I think that the two things that were most surprising to me, and, and uh, one, not that they were, not that it was a quantum difference from what I knew, but it, it brought new information. One of which, which I just wrote a, a, a civil beat column about, has to do with the youth vote, where we know much more about why, about uh, young people. Uh, because and and we know that young people essentially have the lowest turnout historically they do they just do they're not very attached to the political system every election cycle we go through this thing about rock concerts and bringing them out and all of this passion and it can make a difference the the youth vote goes up a little goes down a little Barack Obama was relatively spectacularly successful in increasing it in one of his races. He increased it by 5%, which is huge. But for the most part, if you graph youth votes against other ages all the way along the line, the graph stays about the same, just constantly low. Um, But what you find out from this study is, to me, that's really interesting, is that if you they they take a sample of what they call the emerging electorate, just 18 to 24-year-olds. And they ask them all kinds of questions about voting and all of that. And they compare that to vote to the, to the voting in their big sample and to the non-voters. And generally, the young emerging electorate is even less informed, is even less likely to vote, is even more divorced from the political system, and is even less likely to vote in 2020. So even if you compare this emerging group which doesn't say, you know, this is not the non-voter group. This is, let's see what they do. You find out that they're much more simply outside of the, of the, uh, of the realm. They're just not that interested, which, of course, is, raises an interesting question because this is supposedly Bernie Sanders' emotional heart, the passionate young person. And it's not exactly. I mean, there's certainly a lot of useful passion, but that's different than getting a lot of people to vote. Right, they might like him. They but- might like him, or they, or there's a lot of them who don't know. I mean, when the media covers the passion of Bernie Sanders, they look for certain kinds of people. Um, there's a story in the Sunday New York Times. On the front page, they find some 29-year-old guy in Madison, Wisconsin, about why he's supporting Sanders and all this stuff about his background and how hard it is in the economy for college students. Sure. There's plenty of those, and they tell compelling stories. But overall, if you look at the group of emerging electorate, they're not all. They're they're going to be right down there on the low end of voting turnout, um, and they and they, if anything, they're more disconnected from the political system than the disconnected ones that show up in the in the non-voter thing. And I think that's important to know. Because it reminds us, certainly reminds me, that this is not simply about shaming people or about irresponsibility. You can see it that way. You can morally define non-voting, but it isn't going to get you very far. Well, I know this session they're looking at, you know, lowering the voting sure. age to 16 and, you know, trying mail-in voting. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's going to work. Well, they can all, well, lowering it to 16 there's an illogic to that because if they're disaffe- if they're not disaffected, if they're disconnected at 18, part of that is because they haven't been around. They, their relationship to the political system is still pretty abstract. They're not right. paying taxes. They're not doing all kinds of other stuff. 16 would even be more so. Whether you know, mail-in is certainly an experiment worth doing. Uh, all of these attempts to increase increase uh, turnout makes sense, but you got to remember two things about it. One of which is that they, they involve small changes. Small changes can be really important in a close election. The other thing is that if you look at what non-voters say about why they don't vote, inconvenience is just 
one of the things. You know, so mail's supposed to make it easier. Whether mail, in fact, does make it easier is another question. There are other kinds of reasons that people stay disconnected, and we have to remember that. So what's it going to take f- to get them to care? Um, I don't know. Will the coronavirus maybe no. affect No, I mean, if you want, I could, I'll be a little flippant about this. If you want them to care, you, gotta, you have to basically wait until they get older. There isn't anything else. Now, that's, it's flippant in this sense. You can work really hard, and I admire the, the organizations, the youth voter organizations, that work really hard to bump up the voter turnout. But the fundamental characteristics of young people on this regard has simply not changed over long periods of time, and certain events can make a change, and maybe over time that can change. But that's it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Sure. We've been talking with Neil Milner, retired political science professor and contributing analyst about a new study out on non-voters. Look for links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Hi, my name is Lisa Nakamichi, and I'm the founder and artistic director of the Aloha International Piano Festival, and we are proud to be underwriters for Hawaii Public Radio. We are proud to partner with HPR, who also believe in sharing the highest level of artistic excellence. We look forward to a continued partnership for many years ahead. Hawaii Public Radio Underwriting. Your message heard here. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we rebroadcast a show spurred by a woman winning the Nobel Prize in economy. It's part of a nod to Women's History Month. Got a story to share? More thoughts about the economy? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.